at? Church. Five hundred ministry. We're uh, in the book of Galatians, like we've been, except for last week. Uh, in case you forgot, this is what Galatia looks like, or did. I don't know why, just like showing a picture. Um, but again, the Galatians or Galatia was a province in the Roman Empire, pretty big area, and uh, it was written, as I keep reminding you every week, to straighten out some teaching, some false teaching. And the teaching was this: that Gentiles or non-Jews must follow the Jewish law, or they cannot be saved. And uh, this, maybe this. Specific thing isn't, you know, pushed as much, but the principle behind it is often pushed that you need to do all these things and then you can earn your salvation. Uh, but we know that grace is what saves us. And um, there are obviously things that are expected of us after we're saved. You don't just continue on living in sin. You know, many times Jesus told someone, go and sin no more. So there are things expected, but grace is what initially what saves us. And so um, this is what Paul's writing to, to confront or to straighten out. And, but just about every branch of Christianity has some version of that kind of floating around. Uh, people will you'll come across it. Hopefully you're not um, one of those that are pushing it. As if so, well, you should be straightened out by the end of this. If you listen to the whole of the Bible. But we cannot earn salvation because it comes by grace and grace alone. Um, and so, so far we've covered, um, I guess we're in the middle of chapter 3 is where we left off. So however that works, two and a half chapters. And we've done the whole chapter 3. Um, but we've talked a bit, if you remember, we've talked a bit about Paul's background. And um, how the church in Galatia was accepting a new gospel. Even though Paul says there's only one. We talked a bit about Paul's story when he confronted this teaching already in Jerusalem with um, some of the leaders, with Peter and, and things like that. And in chapter 2, talked about Paul, uh, his account of dealing with it already and um, how he had to confront some people. And we um, said at our first lesson that you can break the book of Galatians up into three um Three sections. Annabelle, I'm going to need your help. This is not working today. Um, so first we got personal, which is grace and the gospel. And then second we have doctrinal, grace and the law. That's chapters 3 and 4. And chapters 5 and 6 is the practical grace and um, the Christian life. And so we've wrapped up already the first bit. And last week we started on... The second, grace and the law. And so we, last time we started in chapter 3, we talked about um, being bewitched. If you remember that? Uh, maybe, you know, yeah. That word means what you think it means. And we saw how Paul used the Old Testament to prove that the law didn't save anyone. But now he's kind of backed himself into a bit of a corner because he's used the Old Testament law to prove his point. But, you know, if the law doesn't save, then what is the point of the law? And why would he use the law if the law doesn't matter? If you're saying it doesn't matter, why are you using it to prove your point? Because then your point doesn't matter if you're using it. You know what I'm saying? So what? 
you know, what's the point of it and all this. And so um, this is another thing that's popped up lately in um, maybe not our denomination, but outside. Uh, I've heard of uh, some well-known preachers talking about how the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. And we got to uh, remove ourselves from that and focus only on the New Testament. And this is uh, obviously not true. Um, so it's a good thing that Paul was a Pharisee because he knew the, the Old Testament pretty well and he was able to argue this very well. So we're going to call this one the logic of the law. And so the Christian faith is a logical faith that can be defended rationally. There are some things, supernatural things, that we may not be able to fully explain, but there are also reasons for any person who is sincere, um, they should be able to understand um, why we believe what we believe. So in this um, section of the Galatians, today's lesson or sermon, whatever you want to say, Paul he makes four statements to help us understand the relationship between the promise and the law. Before we get this, the promise was already, um, the word promise is going to be mentioned many times. Um, last week we left off with verse 14. Chapter 3, and it says, The blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so he's continuing on talking about this promise, and also talking about the promises that he made to Abraham. So the promises of God, he talks about in verse 14, he's talking about the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And so we're going to talk about promises a bit. Um, but the law cannot change the promise. That's the first thing. It's going to point out here. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 to 18, he says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Disannulleth, that's a word we don't use anymore. That's well, a good one. Verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Verse 17, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. We'll explain this after. but For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So the word promise, you might have noticed, popped up four times there, and once before in verse 14. So it's in this chapter quite a bit, again, referring to the promises that God made with Abraham, or the covenant God made with Abraham, also the infilling of the Holy Ghost. So verse 15 again, it says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, Yet if it be confirmed with no man, disannulleth or addeth there too. So basically what he's saying is, I'm going to give you a human example. Um, even with man-made covenants or agreements or you know, things that we sign, um, no one adds to it or takes away from it once it's official. Once it's signed, you sign a document, you sign an agreement, you can't change it. Can you imagine if you could? Uh, you, you sign a, a loan and you're agreeing to pay this much and this is what the interest is and then they want to change it afterwards. There's going to be some fights. You, know, you have an agreement, you sign it, that's it, it's done. Nobody goes back and 
adds more to it or takes away from it. Uh, if they do, then they're going to be in trouble. It's not legal. And that's how contracts work. That's how covenants work. Once it's set, once it's agreed to and signed, that's it. You don't change it. So he said, even if, like, man to man, this is how we do things. Like, if, we, if I make a covenant with you and we sign it, we can't go back and change it. This is what he's saying. Even on the, the practical, the physical side, this is what we do. In verse 16, he says, Now to Abram, Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So that's the case with man-made covenants. But this covenant with Abraham was God-made. So if a man-made covenant is so ironclad that I can't go back and change it, if I make an agreement with you and sign it, I can't go and add things to it and make you pay me more or change the whatever, all the, the list of things that need to be done or whatever. I can't go back and do that because that's how covenants work. So with God, it's how much more so is God going to hold himself to his covenant or his promise? And the covenant God made with Abraham was a grace-based covenant. Abraham didn't even have to, didn't have to meet any conditions. If you read in Genesis 15 and 12, Abraham was asleep when God actually made this covenant. Genesis 15 and 12, it says, And the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And this is where God comes through and fulfills or ratifies um, the, the whole covenant that he makes with Abraham. Abraham was literally asleep. Like there was nothing that he had to do. You know, God made promises to Abraham. Abraham did not make the promises to God. This covenant that God makes with Abraham is all on God's side. And um, the wonderful thing about the promise that he made for Abraham is that it was not just a promise for Abraham. God, in his promise to him, did not say, this is what Paul says, he did not say to seeds, as in many different seeds or branches, or lines of the family tree, he said, to thy seed as in one, Paul says. And Paul concludes that this seed that he was referring to is Jesus. And we've already mentioned the promises God gave Abraham about blessing all nations through his seed, and we know that refers to Jesus. So all these promises he's saying, all this covenant that God made with Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus. We've already mentioned, yeah, we already mentioned those things last couple weeks last two weeks ago or whatever so paul he's making the argument that all of these promises the seed the blessing and all that they've been fulfilled in jesus he's already said that if anyone has faith they are the children of abraham and so he's tying all these um ideas together now he's kind of wrapping everything up all the abraham stuff and the seed and faith and all this and so verse 17 he says uh and this i say that the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. People have tried to figure out the 430 years um, because there is a, a longer gap between when he speaks to Abraham and uh, when the law was given. But they kind of figure out um, God reconfirms it um, to, to Jacob. When he's in Israel, or sorry, when he's in Egypt, and after that would be about 430 years. But 
Um, the point that he's making is that the law came into effect many years after God makes the covenant with Abraham. And just like when you make a contract or a covenant with someone, you do not and you cannot edit it. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. And the same applies here. So if Paul says, if God was to change the covenant that he made with Abraham, when the law was put into place, the law was implemented, then the promise that God made to Abraham would now be void because he's added something to it. He's ruined the, the contract uh, or the covenant. Does that make sense? Um, so a law given hundreds of years later cannot change the covenant that was made with other parties. God made this covenant with Abraham. So a law given to Moses is not going to override that. Hopefully that makes sense. So God's promise to Abraham was before the law, and the law does not change that promise. And so the second thing he mentions here is the law is not greater than the promise. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. He says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels and the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. So when God gave the law to Moses, it was this really incredible moment. There was thunder and lightning. The people, they were trembling in fear shaking in their sandals. It was a pretty big event compared to when God made the promise with Abraham. He just had a nap. And um, <laughs> that's what happened. And people, you know how people are, we love ourselves the big dramatic event. The bigger and more dramatic, the better it is. Right? The more important it is. So to them, the law up here, that's a big deal. There was thunder, there was lightning, there was all kinds of stuff. People were shaking in their sandals. It was terrifying. And compared to Abraham just falling asleep and God doing something. And so well, Paul's making a point here that the law is not greater, even though that's what might, it might look like to us. But it says the law is not greater than the covenant, even though our human minds may see it that way. And he gives two reasons in these two verses why the law is um, not greater than the covenant. The first one is the law was temporary. He says, uh, verse 19, Wherefore then served the law was added because of transgressions till the seed, till I, sorry, till the seed should come. So this should be obvious, right? Something that's temporary is not greater than something that's permanent. The permanent thing is going to be there after the temporary thing is gone. So God made lots of promises in the Bible. If you read your Bible, there are promises all throughout it. Many, many promises. And most of them have ifs attached to them. You know, if my people pray. If you repent. If you do this. If you do that. If you do this, then I will do that. Right? If you, you know, whatever. Most of, a lot of promises come with an if. But if you read through Genesis 15 where God makes this covenant with Abraham, you shall find no ifs. It is not a conditional covenant. It's not up to Abraham to do it. This is all 
on God. And so this is what makes it a covenant of grace. God's going to honor this no matter what Abraham does. And if you read the law, um, blessings are entirely dependent on fulfilling certain responsibilities or meeting obligations or conditions. If you follow these things in the law, then you're going to be blessed. If you um, honor your father and mother, then your days will be long. If you do this, then this will happen. Right? And so... Um, that's how the law works. And the law has an ending point. It was added, he says, because of transgressions, uh, which is because of sin, because people can't help themselves. People just sin. You notice that? People just do it. I don't got to teach them. They just know how to do it. This comes naturally. People, they just go after whatever. Um, and so Israel, you know, they just keep going after other gods. They keep wandering away from God. They're unfaithful. They follow the nations around them. They're influenced by everyone else. And so the law was brought in because of that, because of their transgressions, because they, they weren't doing what they were supposed to. And so the law was brought in for that. But he says, until the seed should come. He's already said the seed was Jesus. Until the seed should come, the seed to whom the promise was made. So the law was only ever intended to be in effect because of the sinful nature of man until someone came to fulfill the law. The singular seed, he says, of Abraham is Jesus. And so through the death, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, the law was done away with. He fulfilled it. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 to 4 says there, is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He set us free from this previous law. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So he's fulfilled it in us. Uh, and Jesus fulfilled the law. He paid the price. He set us free from that. And so the second thing, so the law is not um, permanent, it's temporary. The second thing is the law needs a mediator. He says, to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. So when God gave the law to Israel, he did it through angels, um, and through the mediation of Moses. So Moses is the, the middle man here. He didn't give the law directly to Israel. He, Moses was the go-between. And, you know, he got mad and broke the Ten Commandments or whatever. And uh, had to go do it over again. God, and Moses was the, the middle guy, the mediator. And that means that uh, Israel is getting this law third-hand from God. They're not getting it directly from him. It was from God to the angels to Moses. But when God made his covenant with Abraham, he did it one-on-one. -on -one. He did it personally with Abraham. So a mediator is someone who stands between two people or groups and helps them agree. And God didn't need one for his promise and covenant with Abraham. I don't know. I'm going to share your mind-blowing revelation about the law with you. Are you ready? The law needs someone to enforce it in order for it to work. It needs someone in the middle. That's why we have police officers. 
The law doesn't do anything unless somebody is going to be in the middle, unless somebody is going to enforce it. Laws are dependent on someone else enforcing or acting them out. You can speed all you want down the road. It's all fine and dandy until someone with the authority is there. You can do it every day, and then that one day, and then it's enforced. There's someone in... Yep. But the law doesn't do anything unless there's someone there to enforce it, unless there's a mediator there coming between the law and, and you. So laws are dependent on someone else enforcing or acting in the middle. But this promise we have with God, it doesn't rely on that. Nobody needs to come between me and God and work this salvation out. God is the one who does it. He's the one who fills it. We don't need a middleman anymore. The Bible says that Jesus is our mediator. We don't need someone else to come between us with the law. You know, the Old Testament law, I would need to go to a priest to, to do anything. But with the promise, I can go to God directly. And when the law was given, it was given with flash and lights and thunder and shaking sandals. And that impresses people. We like the big things. We often see them as better, but that's not always the case. And how does this all work? So how does this whole thing work? How does the Old Testament law work with the New Testament church? Is there any point to the Old Testament? Should we even use it? Should we bother with it? What is the point? Do we still need the law? You know, that's a good chunk of the Old Testament there. You know, we just don't read it, just forget about it, just skim on by, take it out of our bread reading. Do we, you know, because it sounds like what Paul's saying so far, it sounds like it doesn't really matter, but yet it's a big part of the Bible. It's a big part of uh, the Old Test or the New Testament church as well. So the law is not contrary to the promise. Galatians chapter three, twelve or sorry, twenty-one to twenty-six. It says, "The law is the law then given the, against." Let's try that again. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been given by the law. It's 22. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. In verse 26, for ye are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So he starts this section here, verse 21, with a question. Is the law then against the promises of God? Is this, how does this make sense? How does this add up? And you can almost kind of hear them as they're reading this letter, asking him, you know, what, what is the point of this? Is this what you're saying, Paul, that the law is against the promises of God? Is God contradicting himself? Of course not, because on the surface, it almost looks like they're against each other. But if we go deeper, we'll see that they actually complement each other. You know how um, in some relationships you have two people that are very different from each other? And on the surface, you're like, I don't know how that thing works. How does that, how are they even together? How is that, how does that work? Well, then you get to know them and you see that 
you know, how they work together, they complement each other, and they, it works. So the law and, the, and grace, they look like they don't go together, but if you get a little closer, you see that they complement each other and they work together. Um, so why was the law given? Number one, the law, before we say it, the law was not given to provide life. Annabelle, help me out here. The law was not given to provide life. Verse 21, it says, Is the, the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. And he says, For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. So before we get into why it was given, we first need to know why it was not given. And it was not given to provide life, because if it had, then we'd be saved by the law, and this entire epistle would be a waste of time. So the law was given... To reveal sin. It's 22. But the scripture. <laughs> hath concluded all under sin. That the promise by faith. Of Jesus Christ might be given to them. That believe. So verse um, 19. Already said that the law was given. Because of transgressions. Or because of sin. But the law. It clearly defines what is sin. The law, if you read it, it shows us where we fall short. The law shows us our sin and our guilt. Grace shows us forgiveness in Jesus. Romans 17 and, or 7 and 12 says, Wherefore the law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. So the law is holy, the law is just, the law is good, and we know that we are not on our own. So the law, the law does not make us sinners. But it shows us that we are. Why would we need a Savior unless we know we need saving? How do we know we need saving if we don't know that we are in danger? Romans 3 and 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law tells us what sin is. There's no point of grace. Paul's been preaching about grace for three chapters now. There's no point of grace unless there's sin. I don't need forgiveness unless there's something to be forgiven of. I don't need grace unless you know, I'm a sinner. Without the law, without us having the knowledge that we are, Sinners, we will never see the need for the grace of God. And this is a huge problem with our world today. No one knows what sin is anymore. And no one knows that they need to be saved. So no one's looking, you know. They're not showing up to be saved because they don't know that they're lost. They don't know that they need to be saved. Um, you know, back in the day, everyone knew that certain things were wrong. You didn't have to go tell someone... You know, what you're doing is wrong. They knew it was wrong. Now, everything's right. Everything's fine. Everything's good. People feel like there's something wrong or missing, and we don't know what it is, and we don't know the words to describe it. And the enemy's got people so confused now that nothing is wrong anymore. Nothing is sinful. It used to be that we all kind of agreed that certain things were wrong, um, but that list is getting smaller and smaller by the day. Even... Even thou shalt not kill. 
that's getting smaller. You know, with abortion, with assisted suicide. Exactly. Just killing off one side, one end of the other. Just waiting it down the window, making it smaller. That's all. Doesn't matter. Amen. It's 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 wild, and this is where this is where we're at. So the importance of the law is to let us know that there's sin and what sin is. So the law it does have a purpose. It lets us know what is right and what is wrong, and that doesn't change, no matter what um, is legal or permitted. And the law of God tells us what is right and what is wrong. The law was given to prepare the way for Jesus. Galatians 3 and 23 says, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. So before this faith came, we were under the law. We were shut off from this faith uh, that was going to be revealed later, made known to us. We didn't know this was coming, he said. We were under the law. Faith refers back to verse 2 when he says, Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's not about believing in um, Jesus and following his word and all that. Um, verse 24 to 25, he says, uh, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So Paul here, he uses an illustration that would have been familiar with the people of Galatia, um, the schoolmaster or the child guardian. Uh, in many houses, many homes during those times, they would have uh, a well-educated slave or, or servant and they would take the kids to and from school and they would look after them during the day. Sometimes they would teach them. Sometimes they would protect them on the, on the way. Sometimes they would, you know, stop them from doing something foolish. And sometimes they had to discipline them. It is not the same as a school teacher today. If you think of a classroom, one person standing up and just talking to everybody. That's not what a schoolmaster was. Um, the actual word means a child conductor. <laughs> so not like a lecturer in front of the class, but someone who is more involved personally with, with an individual child or a group of children like from a home. And someone who really what they did was they taught the child how to behave and how to act. And uh, I guess we have some of those today for certain children. So not every child has one. But by using this phrase or illustration, he's saying a few things about them and about their law. First, they were not born by the law. A schoolmaster was not a parent. It was not the father or the mother. It was somebody else. They were not born by the law. They were brought up by the law. The schoolmaster, again, was not a parent. The Judaizers were teaching that the law was necessary for life. And for righteousness, but Paul was arguing otherwise. By using this example, he's saying that it's not essential. A child is going to be born and grow up whether there's a, a schoolmaster or not. Right? A child is a child whether or not he has a schoolmaster. The schoolmaster, again, is not the father, it's not the mother. The second thing he's saying with his illustration is the schoolmaster's job was to prepare the child for something else. 
A school, like you weren't 35 years old and still had a schoolmaster. You know, you don't grow up and still have your nanny. If you had a nanny growing up, you know, all you rich people. Grow up with the nannies in England back in the... <laughs> you didn't have a schoolmaster when you were, when you were grown. Well, the schoolmaster's job was to prepare you for something else. Once the child became a certain age, they no longer needed this schoolmaster. Once they became mature, they no longer needed a guardian watching over them, making sure they were doing the right things, making sure they were going to school and not somewhere else. You know, they didn't have them following them around, making sure they're going to work today. You know, they, they should have known by now and learned how to act and how to behave. And so they no longer needed the guardian. So the law, he says, is the schoolmaster. The law is preparing Israel for something else. And when that time comes, they're no longer going to need the schoolmaster. They're no longer going to need the law in the way that it has. But the lessons that were taught by the schoolmaster still have value. Those lessons are going to carry through with you. They're going to shape you. They're going to mold you. They're going to make you who you are. And they're going to have value, but they, they no longer need the schoolmaster. They no longer need um, the law. And so the law, Paul says, was to lead us to the coming of Jesus. Verse, um, where are we at there? Verse 26, it says, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So we are no longer you know, under this, the schoolmaster. was bringing us up. We are children of, of God now. We are children of, of Jesus. We've, we've moved from one thing to, uh, to another. So the law made Israel different than all the other people around them, but the law could not fulfill them. If you think of the story in Matthew 19, uh, where there's the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus, um, he has lots of stuff or blessings, we would call them, um, and he followed the law. And he followed everything. He did everything he was supposed to. But something was missing in his life. And what did, what did the law do? What did him following the law do? It led him to Jesus to ask him, you know, what do I need to do now? And Jesus said, you need to sell everything, get rid of everything, and you need to give it away, you need to follow me. So the law literally led that guy to Jesus, to a crossroads where he needed to make a decision, am I going to follow, am I going to go further with this, am I going to stay with what I'm doing? And we know he made the wrong choice. But the law, you know, Paul's saying the law has done its job. It showed us where we've fallen short, and it's led us here. It's led us to Jesus. And uh, the last point is the law cannot do what the promise can do. So Galatians 3, 27 and 29 says, For as many of you... As I've been baptized in the Christ, I've put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then, ye are, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When Jesus came, um, Israel was supposed to move from spiritual childhood under the schoolmaster to adulthood under Jesus. The preparation time was over. They were to move on. They were to graduate. They were to, to leave that behind and go on to something else. 
The law could reveal sin and point us to Jesus, but it could never do for the sinner what Jesus could do. The law could never justify the sinner. The law could never unite us with God. It could never save us. The only one who can do that is Jesus. Verse 27 says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If we've been baptized in Jesus' name, we've been baptized into Christ, we have put on Jesus. And that means the promise that he's been talking about is fulfilled in Jesus. And we've taken that on. Old song, if I could sing, I'd do it. The best thing I ever did do was take off the old robe and put on the new. There's, there's a change. We're putting on Jesus. We're taking off the law. We're putting on Jesus. We're moving from one thing to the other. And interestingly enough, in the Roman Empire, in the culture of the day, there were clothes specific to children and clothes specific to adults. There was a changing when they became an adult. They started wearing the, the toga. Looking all snazzy in one of those. They moved on. There was a change. They put off one thing and they put on something else. So the schoolmaster is to lead us to Jesus and then we put on Christ and we become part of this. We've moved from the law to Jesus. Um, the schoolmaster has led us to him and now there's been a radical transformation. I've changed. I've grown from one thing to the other. And I'm making this step and putting on something new. The whole point of the law was to bring us to here and here we are. And that's what baptism does. It brings us into Jesus and we take on his name. We become part of his body. And the promises that applies to him now applies to us because we're part of that. Galatians 3 and 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. One of the best things about being part of the church, being part of the body of Christ, is that we are all equal. Nobody's better than anyone else. Amen. Remember, Paul is writing to correct some teaching that the Gentiles weren't good enough. And they weren't holy enough or saved enough or whatever. They needed to be Jews. They needed to do this. They needed to do that. They followed the Jewish law in order to be saved. And Paul's arguing that we are all equal when we have been baptized into Jesus. And there are no separations. My hands are Canadian and my feet British. That's ridiculous. This entire body, for better or for worse, is all Ryan Shepherd. <laughs> Take it or leave it. This is what I am. This is all me. All, all real. <laughs> I haven't had any work done yet. <laughs> Don't have any metal hips or anything yet someday <laughs> but we're all we're all part of his body there is no division we're all in him Jew Greek male female free slave it doesn't matter we're all part of him now we're all part of this church this body now and to me that's the most beautiful thing Jesus brings us all together and the Judaizers, they were trying to cause division. And Paul's this whole purpose of this is to bring everyone together. And um, that's what this is about. I don't need to be like you, and you don't need to be like me. We need to be like Jesus. 
And this, uh, I read this, but it says, this must have been glorious news, as they're reading this, to the Galatian Christians. For in their society, slaves were considered to be only pieces of property, and women were kept confined and disrespected, and Gentiles were constantly sneered at by Jews. I don't think we realize that when we read this. He's bringing up people that are low in society and making them the same as others. Um, it's been said that the Pharisee would pray each morning, I thank thee, God, that I am a Jew and not a Gentile, a man, not a woman, and a free man, and not a slave. And yet, when Paul writes this, Paul's a Pharisee, he knew this stuff. When he writes this, he, these distinctions, he, they're removed in Jesus. We are all equal. There is neither um, Jew or Greek, male or female, bond or um, free. And he ends this with verse 29. And if ye be in Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So the law could never make us heirs, but through Jesus we are. And we're taking on this promise, this whole spirit, um, all the salvation, eternal life, all these things we have access to because we've been baptized into, into him. We've put on Jesus. And Jesus changes us completely. And Paul, the whole point of this is this is by grace. This is not by the law. This is how it's done. And again, the law, it does have a purpose. I'm not saying, and Paul wasn't saying, get rid of the Old Testament. He used it all kinds of times. You know, the law does have a purpose, but also, again, salvation only comes through the grace of Jesus. We need the, the two to work together. We don't just write the whole law off and say we don't need it. It shows us some things, but we're not saved by it. So that's kind of where people get confused. But that is, that is the logic of the law. Hopefully that made some sense. Never quite sure. The schoolmaster bit was my favorite. I did not know that. I thought it was a teacher, and now I know better. Um, but let's uh, let's pray before we go. I'm done. Everybody said, "Amen." We can start um, a live stream now in a minute if you want. Stay here till ten. <laughs> or we can go. Let's pray.